This week, one of the NBA's biggest personalities, Charles Barkley. Sir Charles is authentic, unabashed, and unfiltered. I tell you, that's 400 players in the NBA. What are the chances you're gonna be one of the 400 best players in the world? He talks about getting a late start in the sport. One day I was 5'10 backup point guard, and the next year I was the 6'5 power forward. So I kind of came out of nowhere. Addresses a rift with Michael Jordan. Uh, Michael had not done a good job. Uh, and he took it personally. And shares stories from his 16 years in the NBA. You fat, lazy, blah, blah, blah. Get, just get out of here. Get out of here. So believe it or not, this taping took six years. I used to have Sir Charles on my high school radio show. Had his cell phone number, so I thought for sure once we started this show, he'd be willing to do a taping. Little did I know it would take six years because I'd message him during the NBA season, he'd say he's working. I'd message him during the off season, he'd say he's on vacation. And it went in that cycle year after year after year until unbeknownst to me, Charles saw an episode of our show on TV, liked it and said finally he'd be willing to do the taping with us. To my surprise, I guess my number's in his phone because every so often I will get a multi-minute voicemail message on my phone where he's butt-dialed me. Charles is great, one of my favorite people to interview. Super excited to catch up with him, and without further ado, here is Sir Charles. Yeah, I wanted to start by uh, taking you back to when you were growing up, when you're uh, a teenager in high school, your sophomore year, you actually failed to make the varsity mm-hmm. team in basketball. And is it true that um, around that time, you were always the like last person picked in the scrimmage? Well, I was a 5'11 fat point guard. You know, I think, you know, because if, if you go back and look at my history, I wasn't highly recruited. Uh, but that's because one day I was 5'10 backup point guard, and the next year I was a 6'5 power forward. So I kind of came out of nowhere. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't get to play a lot when I was younger. Right, and it was, uh, I think, uh, around Christmas of your senior season that all of a sudden yeah. everybody uh, st- started to take notice. But why um, all of a sudden in high school did you start pretty much practicing by yourself for several hours daily? Well, two reasons. Uh, number one, I had started doing some bad stuff. I started stealing some things. And I had started to hang with the wrong crowd. Uh, we would go to like the local stores and start stealing candies and pens at the front. You know, one day we had a contest who could steal the most pens. I think I had like 25 pens. And, and uh, so I, I, we did that probably all summer one summer. Really? Yeah, and I was like, well, actually what happened in truth, we almost got caught by the cops one time. We didn't get caught stealing the pens and the candy. But we figured out across town, every Sunday night, they would bring in the shipment of cakes for the week. So we went there like every Sunday for a, a month or so. And one night, the cops came out of nowhere. And, and we ran back into the woods. And I could hear the cops saying freeze, and we were crawling on the ground. I probably crawled 100 yards on my knees in the woods. Really? And it scared the hell out of me, to be honest with you. And I remember being terrified with the cops bearing down on me. And I made up my mind that next day, I need to get myself together. 
Th- that was it. You that knew was it. You didn't want that, that was lifestyle. The, I, no, I didn't want that lifestyle. And it, uh, I mean, because just when you're hearing the cops, you hear people just around you crawling, and you hear cops saying, freeze, freeze. And thank God they didn't shoot, obviously. Uh, but it was terrifying. I'm not even going to lie. I was scared to death. I mean, obviously I was a teenager, but I was still terrified. Uh, and, and that day I was like, no, this ain't for you. So I just started playing basketball. I wasn't any good. At this, at this point, I'm still 5'10". But it kept me out of trouble. I didn't get to play a lot, but it kept me out of trouble. And then, like I say, the one thing that helped me the most as a player is playing point guard all those years helped me when I got big. Because a big guy who can dribble, you look at a guy like Dirk Nowitzki today and Kevin Durant. See, big guys don't want to move their feet. So uh, when I became a power forward and I could dribble, that was the best asset of my game when I was a backup point guard. So playing, playing by myself all those times really helped me when my talent grew. And I think you ended up having like a, a 37 and a half inch vertical leap, which yeah. is extraordinary, especially for a guy that... I worked a lot. I worked a lot on my leg strength. But no, you said something earlier about Christmas. What happened in Christmas, uh, we had a really good team, but we played against the best big man in the country. His name was Bobby Lee Hurt. Every college in the country won him. They were ranked number one 4A, and we were ranked number one 3A. And I think I had 30 and 20 against him. And that was actually the first time major colleges came after me because Number one, I told you, nobody knew about me because it happened so fast. So it wasn't a lot of people looking for a 6'5 center or a 6'5 power forward. But Bobby Lee was 6'10". He was the best big man in the country. And up until that game, I had never really got, I hadn't got any letters from major college. It was from small colleges and junior colleges. And and you knew that you had the talent. You just didn't have the opportunity to get that sort of attention. No, I think they didn't think I could play against big people. They're like, you can play a center. Because uh, that was the thing, and that helped me in the NBA also, playing center, always playing against bigger people in college. Because, like, I always joke with people. They did a thing one year about the Auburn's men and women's team. We were the only college in the country where the starting center on the women's team was taller than the starting center on the men's team. I forget this young lady's name, but she was like 6'7". Yeah. Uh, but I was, the, I was the oldest. We were the only school in the country where the women's center was taller than the men's center. That's funny. Yeah. Um, you used to, when you were growing up, you had this, like, three-and-a-half-foot chain-link fence. No, brick fence. Uh, brick fence, yes. okay. And I, 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 the key to me, uh, my leg strength, I want to get my legs as strong as possible. And you don't have any place to work out during the summer. And I used to just jump on that fence for hours every day, jump over it, just over it and over it and over it. And it, 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 was, it built my leg strength up tremendously. Because I always tell people, it's really, it's not about how strong you are. You don't post up with your arms. No, it's really just your base. Uh, that's the key to having a great post-up position, your base. And jumping over that fence hours a day, I mean, I did that every summer for hours. Uh, with the specific intent of helping you with basketball? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I wasn't stupid enough to play football. Uh, I actually did play football one day, the worst day of my life. When you were in high school and being recruited uh, for college, you were talking about incentives before, and you compared it to, like, lollipops at a doctor's office in terms of, you know, how freely they were being given out. But because you 
uh, you know, weren't heavily recruited till later on in your senior year, you, you weren't the beneficiary of any of that. But what, like, what did you see in terms of, you know, No, I didn't see anything because I wasn't heavily recruited, but you hear all the stories from your friends who were heavily recruited. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I wasn't even good enough to get free stuff. That's what was really funny about it. I mean, I never got a letter until I was a senior in high school. And, I, and it didn't bother me because, you know, at this point, I'm not thinking about the NBA. I was just thinking about going to college for free. What did you get from agents while in college? I got uh, some cash from agents, you know, which, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to the NCAA. I think that should be legal. Why? I, why? Because I want some money, too. Everybody else making money. Yeah, I, I want to go on dates. I want to go buy myself a new suit. I want to buy myself some sneakers. Uh, and I paid the agents back. You think it should be legal to get it from agents? Yes, or? yes. See, you know, you, know, you know, Graham, it's interesting. The system is unfair. And there's this great debate about paying players. And I'm always looking out for the players. But I'm not, how do you pay the players? Yeah, how do you? That's my point. Yeah. I, I don't know. Do you pay, let's say Auburn. Let's take Auburn hypothetically. We don't have a good basketball program. Hopefully that's changing. Uh, do we only pay the football team because they're the, the cash cow? Uh, do we not pay the women's sports, swimming and diving? Do we not pay the lacrosse team, the tennis team? So we can't just pay the, the money earning sports. That's unfair and it's sexist. You got, you got to pay the women's sports. And I'm waiting on somebody to tell me a way we can do it. Because like I say, I want these players to be taken care of, but nobody can tell me a way to do it feasibly. And what type of money are you talking about? Or just like minimum wage so uh, the uh, athletes uh, don't uh, have to then go out and get uh, other jobs to support themselves? Well, that's say, I, I don't know the answer. That's my point. But let me tell you why. And I've talked to the NCAA. Uh, if they want a kid to stay in school, because most of these kids leave school for money. What's wrong with an agent letting me borrow some money so I can give it to my mom and I can do some stuff I want to do? Well, because the agent has ulterior motives. It's not your own best interest generally. I mean, maybe But he's making was... me stay in school by helping lending me money. I mean, you'd be better off maybe getting a loan from the bank and the bank, you know, as... The bank going to charge me interest. Right. This guy, like, yeah, uh, he's helping me. He wants me to stay in school. Uh, well, I, he, he also wants to represent you when you're making... It, and that's no, fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, and I understand it. It's, uh, but I think more kids will stay in school. I do. Because, like, kids always say, I'm leaving school because I just want the money. And they're not ready to play in the NBA at all. They're not ready. That's one thing that hurts our league. These young kids are not ready to play in the NBA. But if, if, the ki- if an agent wants to lend a kid some money so he can take care of his family and he wants to have some spending money... What's wrong with it? Yeah, of course he wants to represent that kid. I think I took money, if I remember correctly, I don't want to lie to you, I think I took money from three agents. And I'm talking like, I think the most I took was like $20,000. I'm not talking about a million dollars, a $100,000. is a lot, though, when you have nothing. I know. Yeah. And that made me stay in school another year. $20,000, that's not a lot of money. But I was able to take, do some stuff for my mother and grandmother, and I had some spending money. Okay, I'm cool. I don't have to go into the real world of the NBA after one, after one college season. Whether it, get, whether it be getting money from agents or some of the incentives you've talked about hearing about, you know, 
trips, meals, women, cash, whatever. How many of those same problems do you think still exist in NCAA athletics today? They're always going to exist. They're always going to exist because it's about winning. You think it's just as bad today as it was? It's probably worse today because there's more money at stake. More, there's going to be more cheating when there's more money at stake. You know, the system is broken. Uh, the system is broken. Yeah, how, how would you fix it? My biggest problem with the NCAA is graduation rates. It's not really fair for these people to make all this money, uh, and, and these kids aren't going to get their degree. And you've said before that one of your biggest regrets is not putting as much of an emphasis on education in your life while you yeah, were Yeah, but I'm not up. worried about me. See, uh, true, true. Uh, but, but, but my problem is not, I'm not worried about Kobe, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Carmelo. I'm not worried about us. It's all the kids that think it's, they're the, going to the, be them that, that that's don't. The, that's my problem with the NCAA. Like, all my, a lot of guys I went to school with didn't get their degree. And now their life has been a total a train wreck. Uh, some of them have done great, but some of them are a train wreck. And if you don't, if you don't get a college degree or after four years, uh, five years, whatever it takes, uh, your life, you're fighting an uphill battle. And, and one of the problems this whole debate is we spend so much time worrying about the, that little 1%. I'm not worried about the 1%. I'm worried about the 99% because they can't be good husbands and fathers without a college education. You can't get a good job. How do you encourage the NCAA or individual institutions to emphasize it more? You know, all we can do is talk about it. Uh, that's all you can do. Uh, you know, we can start penalizing them. Well, and because also you said when, when you were at um, Auburn, like the Auburn Athletic department actually discouraged you from pursuing uh, you know academics yeah uh, what what happened was i was taking uh, i wanted to take some classes real classes and they're like you know these are some serious classes here uh you you could flunk these classes and be ineligible they're like there are some other classes you can take that won't be as hard we have a moral obligation to graduate these players we we have a moral obligation because it's obviously had a huge negative effect on the black community. We got so many young black kids who think they're going to play pro sports. They're not going to play pro sports. And but the system has a moral obligation to make sure that these kids get their education. To what extent do you think the system's improving when it comes to that? I don't know if the system is improving. You just see the thing down that they just broke in North Carolina that they were giving these kids degrees. They won't even go into class. It was awful when I was back in school. And it's, uh, you know, first of all, there is some personal responsibility. I, I, I want to acknowledge that. But if you ask an 18-year-old kid, does he want to stay eligible or take classes where he can flunk out of school after a quarter or a semester, of course he want to take bogus classes. Yeah. But the schools have to do a much better job of holding these kids accountable, making sure they get their degrees. And not only that, make sure that degrees are worth something. Why do you think you're able to pretty much get away with whatever you want to say? I pick my battles very carefully. Everything's not worth arguing over. Most of the time, I, I, I'm just going to talk about basketball. And I'm going to try to make people at home enjoy watching basketball. 
that's my number one priority. But if something serious come out, I'm not afraid. Uh, and I think I do have a little leeway because I have basketball money. Like a lot of guys can't be honest and straightforward on television because this is their job. Because people don't really want to hear the truth. But, but even during your career, you might have been making, during your NBA career, you might have been making basketball money, but you still had endorsements. And yeah, because a people lot of people or respect the truth. Are, because kinda... the one thing that people say to me, and it really means a great deal to me, it means a great deal to me. They say, I might not agree with you, but I, at least I think you're going to be honest and you're going to be fair. Even players, when I talk to them, when I criticize them, they're like, okay, I can understand. You know, that's like players and coaches call you all the time if you say something. But I always tell them, was it true and was it fair? And as long as I'm going to be truthful and fair. Uh, and I think it, the demographic, demographic that I want for myself is, I want my group, whether they're old or young, I want them to know, like, I'm always be honest, I'm going to always be fair. One of the reasons I don't do a lot of sit-down interviews is, uh, I, number one, I, I don't like talking to the press, number one, about myself. I do a lot of talking to the press, but it's about, Right. The game and things like that. See, because I think a lot of reporters are biased. They have their... See, I, I watch a lot of television. I watch a lot of sports. And I think some of these reporters, they have their guys and they have guys they don't like. That's why I don't... That bothers me. Two exact guys can't do the same thing. And because one of them is your friend or you like him or you don't like the other guy, you can't have different opinions. The one thing the players tell me, and it means a great deal the NBA players have... They said they like me. That means a great deal to me because I do have to criticize them sometime. But they can be sure of one thing. I don't have a hidden agenda. You've spoken about this a little bit before, but when you were growing up, mm -hmm. you know, really poor, uh, the majority of the rich people really didn't give your family the time of day. <laughs> how did that impact, you know, how you felt if, you were, you, how you felt you would act if you were ever rich. Anytime I meet somebody, I try to always make eye contact because they took the time to come say hello to me. I hate guys who shake people's hand and like, hey, nice to meet you too, and they don't even make eye contact. And I got celebrity friends who do that, it drives me crazy. It only takes a second to make direct eye contact. And hey, listen, I, and I mean this, I'm not just saying this because I'm in short. There's five important jobs in the world, in my opinion. Teacher, fireman, policeman, doctor, somebody who's in the armed service. Those are selfless, honorable people. I play basketball. I don't take myself that serious. You play a silly game. It's a great game. I love basketball. I love basketball. Basketball has given me every single thing in my life. I mean, think about it. I've never had a real job. And I've hopefully got more money than I'm ever going to need, never able to spend. I mean, it's amazing the doors that basketball has opened for me. When you're growing up in the projects in Leeds, Alabama, there's no way you think you're going to be sitting here talking about your life or seeing some of the stuff I've seen. And I always tell people, I don't want to die suddenly. I want at least like two minutes to, to get down and pray and thank the Lord for this has been an amazing journey. I was in my apartment today. And I, I got this picture from the White House. And I'm standing in the Oval Office with the president. I mean, you're like, wow, are you kidding me? I mean, it's crazy. What, what's 
that like for you when you actually take a step back and it's amazing. consider like yeah. that moment specifically? I mean, it's like I, I, I could think about that one. I was one time I was at, when I was playing for the Rockets, uh, Bush Sr., Mr. President Bush Sr., was sitting beside me watching a baseball game, and he's asking me, would you like a hot dog? And I was like, this is surreal. <laughs> this is, and he was such a nice man. But I'm just sitting there, and he asked me, that I, and I was like, the President of the United States just asked me if I wanted a hot dog. And, like, it was so surreal to look back at those things in my life. Uh, you know, I remember on the, when I played on the first Dream Team, we were in Monaco, and I want to say Prince Rainier. We went to dinner with him and Prince Albert. And we were just sitting there, and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, it, it's little stuff, too. You know, I tell people, I've had five people want to meet me before they die. Little kids. Really? Uh, with the Make-A-Wish. And I got to tell you something. It's one of the most humbling sad, happy, terrific things that, that, that uh, you can go through. I mean, it's like your emotions are all over the place. Uh, I mean, because I mean, you're like, wow. And you want the kid to enjoy the experience, and they're so excited, and they just want to take pictures with you and sign autographs, and you, like, you spend like 15, 20 minutes with them. And then you, you're trying to be upbeat and jovial and happy because you want them to really enjoy that experience. And the parents are excited to be there. And then in the back of your mind, like, I'm never going to see this kid again. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heart-wrenching thing. Uh, but to be able to do something like that, uh, it's, it's, like I say, it's really cool. It's really sad your emotions are jumping all over the place there was an incident uh, with you in the NBA that's uh, obviously famous that you mm -hmm. really credit with having had a positive impact on you the spitting incident forward. right right I mean you were you know trying to spit on like a heckler who I actually wasn't who, trying to spit uh, on anybody okay. to be honest with you uh, but it was just stupid uh, w w why do you say that affected you though more than really anything else you did in the NBA? Well, because when I first got to the NBA, I was angry. You know, I was angry at Miss Gomez. Miss Gomez is my high school Spanish teacher. Whose class you flunked I, I, and you I, didn't graduate. I, I flunked that. Uh, and, and I didn't get to graduate. I had to go to summer school. Yeah. So I hated Miss Gomez. You know, I was mad at my dad because my dad uh, he came, he lived in California. He came to see me graduate. And they didn't tell me right before I wasn't going to graduate. So he just kind of reamed me pretty good. And I was angry at him for, uh, I was angry at my high school for not letting me graduate. And I remember, uh, you at my high school, you graduate outside. And I would say everybody else is at the graduation. So I got in my car. I drove there. I stood on the top step by myself in complete darkness and watched the entire graduation. For I was like two hours, if I remember correctly. So I went back home. 
And I said, tell to myself, this is the last time I'm ever going to let anybody control my life. I'm going to stick it to Ms. Gomez. I'm going to stick it to my dad. I'm going to stick to my high school. I'm going to stick it to everybody and shove it up their face. So my first X amount of years, man, like when I was in college, I was just going to kick everybody's ass. There wasn't nothing they could do. I said, this is my goal. I'm a, when I step on this court, I'm just going to kill these people. That's my goal. And I had that attitude all three, three years in college. I was just going to maul anybody got in my way. And then, so then I get drafted to the NBA. So then I still got the same attitude. And then I forget when the spit incident happened. It was probably my third or fourth year in the NBA. And uh, I remember I got suspended, obviously, and should have. And I remember sitting in a hotel room. And I was like, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? What, what, what are you so angry about? And, and I had to sit there. I mean, and I'm watching my team lose. And I'm just sitting there. I'm by myself. And I says, why are you so angry? And then, you know, the next couple of days, I sit down and I said, okay. It wasn't Ms. Gomez's fault, you flunked Spanish. Okay, let that go. And then my dad, I says, hey, it didn't work between your mom and dad. He did fly from L.A. to Alabama to see you graduate, and you, big dummy, didn't graduate. Okay, that's on you, too. Your high school, they probably did you a favor because they had to pass me. I would have thinking I was going to get past this for the rest of my life. Yeah. Taught me a very valuable lesson. I was like, okay, you don't have to be mad at your high school. You flunked Spanish. And then from that day forward, every time I played basketball, I said, just let people see your talent. You don't have to be mad at anybody else. And so that was the turnaround for me. Because, and I've used this analogy, whether you uh, run our test, Mike Tyson, uh, Dennis Rodman, guys I respect as, as, as people. But I think they played like I did on the edge. But I think if you play sports on the edge, it's not a matter of if you go off the cliff. It's just a matter of when. You mentioned uh, your father and graduation and yeah. your father uh, you know, not really being around. Your mother uh, said in your autobiography that, you know, he just couldn't cope with the responsibility of fatherhood. I, I think he left when... Oh, I don't were... even remember when he left, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, but, but, but I want to make this clear. We're, sure. we're, we're great today. Yeah. Uh, we both made some mistakes. Uh, you know, hey, listen, I, I, I shouldn't have been angry at him. Like, sometimes it just doesn't work. That doesn't mean you get mad uh, at your dad if it didn't work. So I was wrong on that point, but he could have been a better father, but today we're cool. What was the most difficult part of that r relationship for you to kind of become at peace with, to move forward? The most difficult part is he came back in after I was already Charles Barkley. And I didn't think that uh, he deserved to come in on that part. Uh, where we would play the Lakers you know, have hundreds and thousands of people screaming at my name, uh, adulation, things like that, playing against the, the Magic, Kareem, James Worth, and all those guys. He, I didn't feel like 
because he wasn't there when I was poor. Right. Uh, that was the toughest thing. Like, it's kind of like anybody. Like, you, you come in for the parade, not for all the stuff to put the parade together. Do you remember some of the tough times? Like, I know in the book, um, you know, you wrote about how, uh, in the book you wrote, you know, many years ago, but you wrote about how I think you were in, like, 10th grade, and he called you up, you know, one Christmas saying he's sending a present home. Uh, yeah, I think things you. like that was very disappointing because he would always say he's going to send stuff. But uh, I think in fairness to him, in fairness to him, he got married and had a different family. Uh, but I th- it was frustrating when he said that he was going to do stuff and didn't do it. Uh, that was very difficult, to be honest with you. Because like I say, man, we were poor. Uh, you know, I had a single mother with three kids, three boys. And uh, kids, as we know, they're expensive. Uh, but I wouldn't change anything about my childhood because Leeds is a wonderful place to grow up. You know, I, always, you know, I look at some of these kids who grew up in a big city. Uh, that's a totally different animal than being in a small town, one school. You go to school with the same group of people your entire childhood. Like, I know everybody at my high school. We started in the first grade together and went to the 12th grade together. And that's why Lee's will always be a special place for me. What did, what did you learn from, uh, you know, I think your mom was uh, 21 when she had you, mm-hmm. so, you know, in addition to your mom, your grandmother was instrumental yeah. in uh, raising you. What do you think growing up in the projects in Leeds, Alabama taught you? Well, I don't think it taught you anything because, like, you don't know it when you're in it. I didn't know we were poor. I knew it now, but I didn't know it. I think what growing up in the project meant for me was, because uh, it, it, it wasn't, because Leeds projects ain't like Chicago or New York projects. You know, I didn't have a, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of violent crime and things like that. Uh, but I think the one thing, when your moms are made and your mom is, is, at a meatpacking factory, it teaches you how to work hard. You're like, uh, I didn't, I've never had a real job, but I think uh, it's easy for me to say. I think I would have been good at a real job, because uh, you know, packing meat and cutting up animals every day is no picnic, and definitely cleaning people's houses is no picnic. I think the one thing it taught me was just about hard work. I mean, listen, like I say, can you imagine cleaning other people's shitty toilets? You know, that's hard work. And cutting up animals and packing it and freezing it, that's hard work. I actually thought dribbling a basketball was pretty easy, to be honest with you. I think it was your uncle, Simon, who uh, was dying, had uh, terminal cancer. And uh, he said something to you that um, really kind of impacted uh, your relationship uh, with your dad, right? Well, I think what happens is, and, you know, I've gotten letters from kids uh, talking about that they're estranged from their father. And what my uncle said to me is, and, and I tell these kids this, no matter, like, first of all, at some point you don't need a father, but you can be cordial like that. Because once your parents die, they're dead. You don't have anymore. I mean, and, and people need to think about that. Like, once your mom and dad die, like, that's it. Uh, and if you talk to anybody in that situation, and I've talked to, obviously, hundreds of people, like, they always miss their mom and dad. And 
my uncle had said, hey, listen, you and your dad need to at least be friends. And I thought that was, and I agree with that. I do agree with that. Because like I say, when your mom and dad gone, uh, like, they tell me even, even, if, uh, even if you're estranged from them, it's still somewhat traumatic, to be honest with you. How do you think your family dynamic impacted you as a parent later in life? I want to be a good father. I try to do the best I can. It's been difficult at times because, you know, you're always traveling. But I think she's a great kid. She's a great kid. I think that she, she understands what I expect out of her. Because when you are given, I forget the saying, for, for, for too much is given, much is expected. And she's had a great life, but um, she understands, like, I want her to do great things. Uh, I do. I want her to do stuff like that. It's important for me. He just can't be, ha- lived a good life. Right, and you're in a position to be able to provide th- those sorts yes. of uh, opportunities for her. I, I want to go back to uh, the NBA and uh, your uh, relationship with Michael Jordan specifically, mm-hmm. which also is... Uh, you know, f- kind of f- famous. You, you credit him uh, really with having a bigger influence on your career than anybody and have said that he's helped you in ways that people could never understand. How so? Well, I think that Michael has always been like a a brother to me. Michael is a great businessman. If you go back and look at it, Michael was probably the first jock businessman. He talked me taught me about stock options. You know, cuz I was making a nice chunk of change from Nike. And he saw that and, and he says stop taking so much cash, take stock options. And if I remember correctly, I think I quadrupled my money cuz the, the Nike stock split several times. And it was really a great business decision. And he taught me to learn to take care of my money and to be a, a, a businessman. This is a business. I mean, I don't have his type of money, but I think I've been very successful with my money because the key is you got to make money grow. You can't spend it all. And I think uh, being around him has made me a better businessman. Uh, but he's been a great mentor to me in the business world, and he's been a great friend. What, what's caused the rift between you and Michael? I think that Michael uh, was upset about some of the things I said about the Bobcats, which, number one, they were true. I can't, you know, I told you earlier, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be fair. But, uh, you know, when they were vying for the worst record in NBA history, uh, Michael had not done a good job. Uh, and he, t- he, takes, he took it personally. Well, I mean, if you guys have been great friends forever, why should that matter in the grand scheme of things if you just criticize I think the, that, some yeah, I NBA think that, decisions. I think that everybody got, I, I, I wish it was that simple to be honest with you. Uh, but I always love him like a brother. But I'm going to do my job first and foremost. Because I can't get on TV and be dishonest with people. They know when you're being dishonest and disingenuous. Uh, I'm going to do my job, plain and simple. You think the rift's able to be repaired? Always. Okay. Always. Uh, so 93 NBA Finals, yeah. your son stunned 
the Bulls uh, to bring the series uh, back to Phoenix. The Bulls are up three games uh, to two, and uh, you say to Michael that you don't want to uh, play golf cards or you know hang out when you get back to Phoenix. That's, and, you know, and that's what one of the biggest misconceptions ever. Really? You know, the, it, I've heard that story. Uh, me and Michael never played uh, golf or had dinner during the finals. I mean, we understand it was a competition. And I heard that, I've heard this before, that Michael took me out and buttered me up on the golf course in the dinner. And I was just kind of laughing. And we, were, we always laugh about it. These are big public, I mean, Sports Illustrated, I read that in an SI profile. Uh, so from, uh, I know I like the way you read. Don't believe everything you read. Right. Uh, but uh, we, we were friends during and we were friends after. But this notion that he took me, yeah, I heard the same thing about Patrick Ewing. He took us out to dinner to butter us up so we wouldn't compete. First of all, if you know Michael, there's no person you want to beat more. There's no person you want to beat more than Michael. Let's get that straight out the way. How, how bad you, did you want it then? Well I, he, uh, well, I just want to win the championship. But, you know, he can talk trash with the best of them. So you wanted to beat him. Uh, but they were a better team, and uh, we gave it everything we had. Uh, they were awesome. Uh, there were, like, two Bulls defenders that took the ball from you, I, I think I think three times when the yeah, Suns had a, a six point. The, the Suns had the a two six best point. defenders I've ever seen uh, was Horace uh, Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen, and I, we had a six point lead or seven point lead somewhere in that range, and obviously the ball is going to come to me with the game on the line, and I've always been mad to even to this day that I couldn't score. I passed the ball. They, I mean, those guys were great defensively, and I had to pass the ball. And we went down the court three straight times and couldn't score. I mean, if we make one basket, the game is over. But it's always frustrated me uh, that I, I mean, I, I couldn't score on those two guys. They're too great uh, uh, defensively. But it still makes me mad I didn't get to shoot. And did, does that still get to you this day? It still gets me a little bit, to be honest with you. Uh, the 92 Dream Team. Uh, I mean, you guys were, I think, beating teams by an average of 44 points a game. You never called timeouts. Uh, you were the team's leading scorer, scorer. And you said, like, those Olympics specifically helped you psychologically because going into them, you thought, yeah. like, maybe you did suck, in your words. Well, it, what it did for me was... When you're a great player on a bad team, it's mentally deflating. And you were on a bad team. Yeah, yeah. it was point. very mental. It's, it's, it's tough to go play every single night and know you're going to lose. And it's just tough. And then when I got picked for the dream team, it gave me such a rush. And the game was very easy. The better players you play with, the easier the game was. And I remember one day I got the best compliment I've ever gotten from anybody. Chuck Daly says to me, you're the second best basketball player in the world. And I said, there's somebody better than me. And we had a great chuckle about that. And I said, thank you, coach. He says, I mean that. And he said, getting a chance to watch you play every single day, is, it's been a pleasure. And I said, coach, thank you very much. And it meant, it meant the world to me because, like I say, we were stinking up to join in Philly. And to be able to be to be affirmed by somebody who's a great coach. Because like I say, 
if, if even if you go back and look, when I got traded to Phoenix, I was a much better player in Philly, but I didn't get the MVP until I went to Phoenix and had a better team around me. Because when you play with better players, the game is easier. What was the environment like when you guys went to get your Olympic IDs when you got to Barcelona? You know, it was like, I tell people, man, it was surreal, to be honest with you. Because, you know, I, I try to tell people, you know, going into the Olympics, we didn't know we were going to win games by 60, 70 points. Yeah. We were like, dude, if we lose, this could be huge. Uh, this would be a big deal if we lose. And we're like, yeah, it is. Because like, we didn't realize that till we got there. Because when, when we would go to the games, there would be five to seven, 10,000 people standing out there to watch me walk from here to that fireplace. When we left the hotel, it'd be 10,000 people there some days. And they only got to see you walk from here to that fireplace. And they had a helicopter above the bus. Guys with Uzis. They had two guy, two motorcycles on each side with Uzis. And they had a police car in front and a police car in back. Like I said, you got all this security. And when you're driving on the highway, there's people just standing there holding signs. You're like, wow. Because there's no way you can anticipate that. And I think it was on the flight back to the States, you're over the Atlantic, that just the totality of the experience started to really sink in for you. But how do you think those Olympics impacted the game of basketball globally? I think it changed the world. Uh, Because some of these guys, I talk to them today, whether it's Ginobili, whether it's Dirk Nowitzki, you know, Tony Parker, you know, guys like that, they said it it made them want to play basketball. I mean, so it, it was huge. I mean, it was huge from a from a worldwide standpoint. Because if you go back, we didn't have many European uh, players, any foreign players in NBA back then. It all started after the 90s, after the 92 Dream Team. And then some of the players who were great overseas, uh, they came to the United States. We all knew those guys because we had played uh, against them before. Yeah. So it was cool that they came over here. And people forget that was the first time NBA players were allowed to compete yes. for their, mm-hmm. their country in uh, and the, the, the that, Olympics. And the thing that was unfair, because like, we would watch, because we started losing in international competition because they were using pros and we were using college kids. And we'd see uh, Sabonis and, and Drazen and all those guys just killing these college kids. I mean, like, those guys shouldn't be playing against college kids. They should be playing against us. But after that, they all started coming over here. Was it weird when you guys were flying back knowing that there was never going to be the opportunity for that group of guys to play together again? Well, I think what happened was we realized that something amazing had just happened. And I will tell you this, too. And I've said this. Everybody should go to the Olympics one time in their life. I don't know if you've ever been to the Olympics. It's the coolest event in the world. And television doesn't do it justice. Television does not do it justice. It is amazing. And so it's, it's just amazing. And when they play the national anthem, it's one of the few times in my life I've gotten goosebumps. I mean, when they play that national anthem, they put that gold medal around your neck. It is one of the coolest things. Like, uh, I tell people, man, it is surreal. Your weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think you weighed uh, 
284 pounds before the 76ers drafted you. And they, they wanted, to 300. Okay. And they, they wanted you to, to, at least I heard, get down to 275 before the draft. You end up getting down to 272 pounds. And then what happens? Well, you know, back in that day, the, the, the leagues had a hard salary cap. So I visit the Sixers a month before the draft. Because I had already been down in Houston working out. Because I was 300 pounds in college. I was between 295 and 300 in college. So I had been down in Texas working out, and I was down to 282. And I went to visit Sixers a month before the draft. And they said, you weigh 282. We'd like for you to get to 275. I said, sure, no problem. So I go back down to Houston. I'm actually around down 270, to be honest with you. And my agent says, hey, you know, we need to talk about this sub sickle situation. I said, what's the situation? He says, you know, they, they only can pay you one year at $75,000. I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, they have a hard cap in the NBA, and you're going to have to get, like, the, the minimum, one year $75,000. I said, I didn't leave college for $75,000. So this is two days before we got to stop back in Philly before we get to New York for the draft. So I said, well, we got to make sure the Sixers don't draft me then. So we went on a two-day eating binge. We got up the first morning. I had like six pancakes, bacon, wash it down with a vanilla shake. <laughs> then we went to lunch. I, I think I had like... Uh, four or five pieces of Kentucky Fried Chicken, some mashed potatoes, some coleslaw. Then we went to dinner someplace. I had like a T-bone steak, had a baked potato. Uh, and then the next day, did the exact same thing. So we fly to Philly. I get on a scale. I'm like 302. <laughs> I like 302. And Harold Cast cursed me. You That's the fat, owner of the yeah, seventy. You fat, lazy, blah, blah, blah. Get just get out of here. Get out of here. And we take the train up to New York. And I gotta tell you something. I, I, I if people take a good look at the uh tape, and when they said with the number five pick, the seventy sixers take Charles Barkley, the look on my face is are you kidding me? You weren't smiling. I like, wasn't smiling because yeah. I was like, I left college for $75,000. And I remember telling my agent, I said, oh, my God. But in fairness to the Sixers, they ended up trading two guys. Uh, they traded two guys, and my first contract was four years, $2 million. Uh, so uh, I'm off and running then. Did you really, in college, you said this somewhere, so I don't know if it's true or not, that over like the first 200 days of college, you ordered pizza 160 times? That's somewhat true. I'm not sure. It was close to 70, 80, 100 times. But that was only because what happened was, you know, meals were on a set schedule. And you can't justify that. Yes, you can. You're hungry. <laughs> What happened was, we didn't finish practice in time to eat most of the time, to be honest with you. By the time you practice and take a shower and relax, it's too late to eat. 
uh, or, or you get there and it's, all the good stuff is gone, and by 10, 11 o'clock, you're hungry. So we ordered pizza pretty much at least three or four days a week, no question. What's amazing is when you were born, you had anemia and yeah. you only weighed six pounds, 12 ounces. Um, what's, what's the, um, in terms of weight, the largest you played at and then like post-career well, as well? The, the college career, uh, I was between 290 and 300 the entire time. And, you know, the thing that most people don't say, the, the biggest influence in my basketball career has been Moses Malone. And Moses, I call him dad because he's been like a father figure to me. And Moses, I asked him because I didn't get to play a ton my first at the beginning. And I pulled Moses aside and I said, Moses, why am I not getting to play? And Moses, you know, he, he's really brutal. He said, you fat and you lazy, young fellow. You fat and you lazy. I'm like, oh, I'm fat and I'm lazy. He said, you need to lose some weight. He says, you want to work hard, I'll help you. Big, big Mo, Big Mo, Big Mo, I'll help you. And uh, he was great. He says, and I think at that time I was like 290. He says, I want you to lose 10 pounds. So I lose 10 pounds, I'm 280. He said, I want you to get to 270 now. I get to 270. And now I'm like, okay, I'm in, you can tell I'm in shape now and I'm getting to play. He just get to 260. At this point, I'm starting like really start to kick some butt. I'm starting to play well. He can play obviously extended periods of time. And he says, "Why don't you get to 250? I'm really rolling right now." And then I get to he said, "Get to 240." He said, "I want to experiment." And I got to 240, but I didn't feel strong and explosive. He says, "No, 250. 250 is your weight." And that's what I played my entire career at. How much did the weight stuff actually got to you, at least in college? I mean, people gave you all sorts of Oh, It didn't bother me. Well, what happened was Auburn, we were trying to attract attention to the program, so we took the Sports Illustrated picture with me, all the pizzas and things like that, because we were doing anything to get attention to the basketball program. How much racism still exists, in your opinion, today? A lot exists today. You see, uh, when I say a lot, you see stuff all the time. Uh, and it's sad to me. You see it all the time. Cause it, it, and I always say racism is the greatest cancer of my lifetime because the notion that I would say another person I've never met before, I don't like that person, it sounds insane. It sounds insane. I mean, think about it. I don't like a, a, a white person. I don't like a black person. I don't like a Jewish person. I don't like a Hispanic person. I'm like, you sound like a fool. Like sometimes you see one of those fools on television, and you're like, this dude's a fool. Because the truth of the matter is, every ethnic group got scumbags. Every ethnic group got great people. And to brush, uh, put a brush, brush on everything on one ethnic group is just ridiculous. And I'm gonna always be the same. I'm gonna judge every person by their own merits. Uh, and that's the way it's going to be if you're going to be around me. I don't allow my friends to be racist, sexist. Uh, I'm never going to stand for that. And my grandmother, that's the one thing about my grandmother, who's probably the greatest person I've ever met in my life. She says, we, uh, she, she says, I want you to understand 
as soon as I was old enough to understand, because obviously she grew up, Birmingham is a big civil rights city. Uh, you got Montgomery, you got Selma, all these are places I grew up in Alabama. And the one thing she always talked about, like, and she talked, she says, you know, you do notice when you see all these marches, there are white people in that crowd also. So there was a lot of white people who did a lot of heavy lifting for civil rights also. So you can't just say it's white against black or Latino or anti-Semitism. There's a lot of people who have made this country great. You've said before that welfare has given the black man an inferiority complex. Um, How so? Well, I think that welfare has, you know, when you start rewarding people for having kids, uh, it can't help. It can't help. First of all, it's not like they're going to make you a millionaire. Think about that. Like, they've done a terrible job in this country paying people to have kids. And people, number one, they like the money, but they, they never look at the big picture. They're going, they don't give you enough. Uh, I don't even know if they give you enough money to survive, to be honest with you. They give you some money, but it just keeps the stereotype going, uh, and it keeps the same situation going for you your entire life. Uh, your vices. Uh, what do you like about gambling? Well, uh, winning. It's exciting to win money. Is that what you, is it the winning that you yeah, it's like? Winning. Okay. Uh, you know, people out here, I hear all these people talk about you just like the action. No, I like the money, actually. But you don't, you don't gamble to win, do you? I mean, you don't go to, like, sit at a card table in the casino to win, right? I mean, what, is my, what am I there for, then? I don't know the experience. No, I'm there to win. It's a great feeling to win. But the man. house always has the advantage. When you're they do. And it always sucks when you lose, but it's a great feeling when you win. I think that the, the thing that I conquered about my gambling was I changed my mentality. I'm not trying to win a lot. I'm just trying to win. You know, Graham, I've won a million dollars probably four or five times. Well, I won a million dollars. In a single day. In a single day. But I've lost a lot more millions in a single day. How many times do you think you've lost a million dollars in a single day? At least 10 to 15, somewhere in there. Uh, like I say, I probably only won a million f- five or six times. But I've lost a million, somewhere between 10 and 20. I can't get an exact number because we're going back to the 80s. Uh, do you think it's ever gotten out of hand? Yeah, no questions got out of hand. Uh, but I quit for like two years. And I remember talking to my friends one night, and we said, this man, I talk about my gambling and my friends and my friends have they have to be brutally honest with me or they can't be in my inner circle and they says oh gambling's not your problem you're just an idiot <laughs> and I says what does that mean they're like Charles gambling is not your problem they says we have been sitting at the table with you and you've been up 300 400 500 600 700 thousand dollars and we says let's quit and you develop this thing where you're like, I've got to win a million dollars. They says, when we go gambling, if you win a couple hundred thousand dollars or $50,000, let's quit and go have fun. 
Let's don't try to break the casino because you can't break the casino. And, and since I developed that mentality, gambling is a lot more fun to me, to be honest with you. What's the most you've ever seen one of your friends lose gambling? Well, a million, at least a million. I mean, listen, we got friends who got money. What's the one thing about casinos? They'll keep giving it to you. What's the most you ever tipped at a casino? Probably a, a 7500 $100,000. Why? Because I won a couple, uh, almost a little over a million. You know, they, you know the, the dealers have to they split those. It's a lot of money regardless. I won a lot. Yeah. So you, you always tip the dealers. You've donated millions of dollars of your own money uh, over the years to worthy people or worthy uh, causes. What out of everything you've done has been most meaningful to you personally? When I get a letter from my kids, uh, you know, the $3 million I gave, the way I did it was for tax purposes. You know, I just can't write a check for $3 million. That's a lot of money. So I gave uh, Leeds, Auburn, and other schools uh, Cornerstone and Birmingham. I gave each one of them $100,000 for 10 years. And the way it works is if you keep doing well in school, you get more money. And every time I go visit my mom, I got stacks and stacks of mail from these kids thanking me for the scholarship and thanking me for helping them more and telling me what they're going to do in life and how their school is going. That's nothing better. Is there one that sticks out the most? Uh, not really, not really, not one that stick out the most. I, went, I, had a, I got three nieces, I got four nieces, and I've been back to a couple of their graduations, and somebody I went to school with had a kid there. And they came up and gave me a big hug and said, thank you for giving my kid a scholarship, helping my kid. That's probably been the greatest joy. Somebody I went to school with, right. uh, I'm helping their kid go to college, and they really was thankful for that. So, but that's probably the most meaningful thing, to be honest with you. Um, you know, with the exception of that $3 million donation, for the most part, you've, it seemed, tried very hard to keep your, you know, philanthropic endeavors very private. Like, yes. you don't want them to get uh, publicity. Why has that been important to you? Well, because I don't, two things. If you want to do something good, like, people just found out, uh, I don't normally discuss the $3 million, but obviously, first of all, they discussed it because they probably want some more. Right. But that's not a bad yeah. thing either when, you know, stuff like that gets publicized because uh, that'll I, encourage other people in similar positions. And, to, and, and, and uh, encourage more people to call and ask me for money, too. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I think, for man, I, 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 listen, I, I, as I told you earlier, I, I can't believe my life. I can't believe my life. And, you know, Graham, most people live life like this because we're brainwashed. I want to have a big house. I want to have a big car. I want to make a lot of money. I had that when I was 25. And I'm sitting there like, there's got to be more to life than this. And then I said, hey, you know what? I just got to bring, I to bring as many people along with me for this ride as possible. And I don't want to just stockpile money. I love being able to help people. I do. I love being able to help people. Now, I'm not going to do, I mean, because I get 100 letters a week. Yeah. I'm not going to try to save the world. Right. 
but I'm going to try to help as many people as I possibly can. Uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, you've called him your idol and meeting him the greatest single day of yeah. your life. What do you most admire about him? Uh, he stood, he took a stance. And the thing, if you go back and look at the story, he didn't want to go to war. And he says, no, I won't go to war. And they even told him, you can just, you don't have to go to war. You can do like exhibitions and things like that. Uh, he says, no. He says, you guys want me to go over here and kill the Viet Cong. I can't stay at the hotel with white guys. We got separate restrooms. We got separate water fountains. Y'all don't respect me, but y'all want me to go and kill strangers. That, to me, was, he can't ever, that's why he's always going to be my hero. I mean, to take that stance, you know, people hate him for a long time, but not the black folks. Because think about that. He said, you, I can't use the bathroom with you guys. We drink out of separate fountains. I can't stay in your hotel, and you want me to go and kill complete strangers? That's not going to happen. And when I started getting old enough to understand, yeah. I was like, this man is unbelievable. He, he took us. And I hope, and it's easy. See, people have compared us. I said, that's, that's an insult. That's an insult to, to him. To compare any black man today to what those older black guys went through, that's an insult. Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Ali, uh, those guys, what they've been through, I, I, say, I always say they did a lot of heavy lifting to make it possible for me to play, make millions of dollars in the NBA. Well, those guys are amazing. From that point on, when I learned, start reading about it, he, he's been the greatest influence in my life. I hope I'm always able to stand up for the little man I do. Like I say, it's easy for us to say what we wouldn't do and what we wouldn't do. But I guarantee you this. On my watch, if I saw anybody getting mistreated, I'm going to stand up for them. Anybody. So I know you've said at the end of your uh, Turner contract, you're going to retire from broadcasting. I, I spoke to somebody close to you who said, no way. Uh, your thoughts? Everybody wants you to keep working because they're not working. They just get a residual effect. You know, Greg, well, it's not a bad gig. You make a lot of money, work a day or two a, a, a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, until you know playoff time when you have to work more. I got the best job in the world. I work with great people. Got a great boss, and you have to understand something. This ain't my career. NBA was my career. This is my second one. I love my job. What do you think will be next for you? I would like to run an NBA team. I, I, that's my next goal. Uh, I think I'll be good at it. I think I've studied really hard. I think I know basketball. I just got to surround myself with a good supporting cast, uh, which I'm going to do that. I'm not afraid of confrontation. Uh, obviously, I'm going to have to make the final decision. But to be successful in anything, you have to have people around you who are going to be honest with you. That's the biggest problem with celebrities. See, most of the people around you, they're on the payroll. And they're never going to tell you you're wrong. Uh, they're never going to disagree with you. And I don't run my inner circle like that. You think you go right in from broadcasting I hope so. into running a team? I hope so. No break? No break. I mean, but like I say, I, the, the TV thing is great. 
I love it. But like I say, how long do you do it? Let's just say hypothetically, uh, I sign a contract extension for let's say three years or five years. In three years or five years, I'm gonna be saying the same thing. Wait, I've been doing this a long time. What would you say is the most satisfying moment from your career? Well, I think a couple things. I think when the Sixers retired my jersey, that's an emotional thing. And when the Suns retired my jersey, that's a very emotional thing. Anytime you get your jersey retired, it's pretty cool. And you try not to cry. That's the most important thing. You get a little emotional now even talking about it. I think going in the Hall of Fame is very deep, too. Because if you get to the Hall of Fame, man, there's so many people you just want to thank. Because you don't do this thing alone. So those are probably a couple of the greatest moments of my life. Well, you've had a fascinating life, and I appreciate you being no so problem, open it's today amazing, with isn't it? y- your stories. Thank you. And, I'm glad uh, we did it. It's been this, a man. long time coming. I'm glad we did it, Thank though. you very much. Yeah. Thank you. That'll do it for this week. If you enjoyed listening, make sure to give us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Also, if you care to see me shockingly beat Sir Charles in an abbreviated game of horse, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. While there, you can also check out some of our interviews with other NBA stars like Shaq, Steph Curry, the late Kobe Bryant, and more. Again, youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Thanks again for listening.